Welcome to Shoot Like a Girl, a podcast featuring interviews with extraordinary military women from around the world who push their limits on and off duty. I'm your host, Kate Stewart, and this is episode number five. Today's guest is Giselle, also known on social media as Golf Alpha Delta. Giselle joined the Canadian Army Reserve in 2008 as an infantry soldier. She has previously volunteered in Rwanda and was recently awarded the Minister of Veterans Affairs Commendation for her advocacy work supporting veterans and first responders. Welcome, Giselle. Thank you so much for being here today. I know it was a little bit hard to coordinate our times and nail down a time for this interview, but finally worked out. Yeah, definitely. Hey. Let's start off by talking about where you grew up. Ooh, okay. A little bit all over. Lived in BC for a bit, lived in Calgary before the base shut down, and then settled in uh, Ontario. I was in Windsor for the longest time. Okay. Do you have a military family? I do. So uh, my dad was a patricia, so he was uh, one of the bases there in BC, Victoria, Victoria, I think. And then uh, when the base was open in Calgary, we were there and kind of just lived all over Canada a bit. And what was that like as a child moving from place to place? Uh, my mom used to joke that we never lived anywhere long enough to renew a health card. Okay. And so always just being bounced around. And then it, uh, and then when we settled for the second time in Ontario, it was all right, because at that point, uh, my dad had retired, and then he was uh, with, the, with the reserves out there, so it was all right. Okay, so no more worries about getting posted somewhere and having to move again. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I'm all sort of curious about what it's like for kids to grow up in a family with someone in the military, because no one in my family was, so, you know, and there would always be stories growing up of, like, oh, this person's parents are in the military, and they're super strict, and now that I'm in the military, I realize like not all people are like that with their kids. Yeah, my mom used to say that some of the toughest things would be like with uh, dad going on a deployment, he would leave and there are certain rules, right? So like you can't walk down the street by yourself and the cereal is in a certain cupboard and then he'd come home and have to adjust to, well, we're allowed to go to the parks by ourselves now and, you know, uh, dishes got moved and everything and it was adjustment for both her and him, and then mm -hmm. us used to, oh, dad's back, and, you know, all the challenges that uh, come with a family member coming back from a deployment, so it was definitely interesting. Mm -hmm. What made you want to join the Canadian Forces? Was it just because of that family connection? Definitely family was a, a very large motivating factor, absolutely. My, my whole family has been in on um, pretty much everyone on my dad's side, and my mom actually was in the Navy, that's her how her my dad met in um oh man what's that place called in Ontario there it'll it'll come to me later though but that's how they met so that was definitely a big a big key factor in me joining and the other factor was just uh to be honest I just needed a job fair enough <laughs> yeah. reason and did your dad ever push you to to join the military or was it something that you just 
saw from your other family members and you felt that was on your own, that that was something that you wanted to do? It was definitely on my own. So I used to do uh, photography for the infantry reserve unit in Windsor before okay. I joined. I would go to their functions and I do their photos and edit them and so that they could print it. And then I was also the bartender in the senior uh, NCM's mess and the junior ranks. And so I was, I was pretty exposed to the environment. And then it was just, you know, I've always been used to working two jobs and then I only had one. And so I pretty much just sat down with my dad and asked him, like, hey, what's it like? And, you know, he laid out the information for me. We went to the recruiting office and back when he was like, like you probably remember when you'd have to apply on like a stack of paper. Yes. And, then, yeah. and <laughs> hand in the application that way. <laughs> yeah. No digital applications. Uh, what year did you join? Uh, 2008. Okay, same here, actually. And so did you ever consider any other trades or for you, it was just you wanted to go infantry? So I was kind of tossing up whether do I go reg force or do I go reserves? And at the time, I was young and dumb and decided to uh, stay in my home area because it's like, oh, well, I'm going to stay with my high school sweetheart. So I need to stay in the same city, which was stupid. But that left me with three options, um, infantry, service battalion, and armored. My dad at the time was the RSM of the infantry unit. And so I asked him his opinions on it. And it was like, okay, dad, what's the infantry like? And he's like, it's where you learn to, you know, hunt, close in, kill, and destroy the enemy. I was like, cool, that sounds awesome. And then I said, what about the other two? And he pretty much just looked at me and was like, don't worry about it. And I was like, okay, <laughs> infantry. <laughs> Done deal. <laughs> What was the training like for you? Um, you do basic training and then you do SQ, soldier qualification, is that it? Yeah, so back then, uh, the reserve infantry had to do BMQ and SQ. Okay. And then we had to go on to do our DP1 and then you do your DP2 Alpha and all those other courses. But uh, they don't do that anymore for reserve infantry. You just do your BMQ and then your DP1. They cut out that, uh, that middle course, which okay. is now BMQ land. They're doing a lot of different stuff with reserves now. I know in the Navy, when I went, it was almost the same amount of time as the Reg Force BMQ. It's like 10 or 12 weeks. And now they've cut it down where it's mostly done in unit, like on the evening and weekends, and then go to Valcartier for two weeks, I believe, of the field phase. And that's it. So, okay. Yeah, definitely a different experience where you're not living with people for a few weeks at a time. It's like you see them on a Wednesday night and then you see them again on the weekend, but you're going home in between. And they changed the uh, they changed the course too because the soldier qualification course used to be the same as what the Reg Force BMQ land is right now, which is your full four weeks and you're learning all of the uh, support weapons. And so I, I really value that extra training that I got because now the reserve BMQ land is 12 days. You only learn the C9. That seems so short. Yeah, definitely. Were you in shape when you went? Like, did you play sports growing up? Were you active or did you find it hard to keep up? I played sports all throughout, like being a kid and growing up and going through high school and everything. But man, that is just, that is a different type of fitness because I played like soccer, basketball and everything, but those are doing short sprints, right? So going mm -hmm. on my first long uh, run with the Sir, I died. It's awful. I hate running. I'm not a huge fan of running either. And it's different <laughs> moving around with all that weight on your back versus just, you know, running when you're playing a sport as well. Oh yeah, the ruck marching too, especially if you've got your buddy in the front who's like six, seven, stepping it out and you're like lucky if you hit five, four and you got short little legs. So 
Exactly. And it's uh, definitely a, a larger percentage of your body weight compared to uh, a guy that's over 200 pounds. So then after that, did you pretty much get into working full time with the reserves right away? Or did you do part time and then work civvy jobs? Uh, at the time, I was doing part time. So I'd go away and, you know, your summers are are pretty booked and everything. And then during the school year, I was in college, I was doing my uh, my pre-nursing. So I was doing reserves and then uh, my college. And then I transitioned to doing reserves full time. And then I've had like civvy jobs here and there. Uh, but for the most part, throughout my military career, it's been pretty much uh, reserves full time, whether that's you know, going to Kingston and doing taskings there or being a Meaford for a while. So. so you took nursing in college? I did. Yeah. So did my pre-nursing, my pre-health and then I did my pre-nursing. And then I finally got into nursing and then lo and behold, I get into nursing and uh, end up over in Edmonton. It's how she rolls. Okay. So you did the nursing or you, you didn't complete it? You went to Edmonton instead? I didn't get to complete it because I got okay. posted at Edmonton. Gotcha. Yeah, I did the two-year practical nursing program. And then pretty much as soon as I finished, I did the work placement. And I was just like, this isn't really for me. And at the same time, I had done my basic training the first summer. And then the summer after that, my ship's team diver. The military is definitely, I think, a more fitting option for me. So I just decided to pursue that instead of the nursing. Oh, nice. Yeah, but it's, it definitely comes in handy when, you know, when there's medical training involved and then you have that background. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like I took, uh, I was able to take some time. I went over to uh, Africa and I did, I did some stuff there just um, in Rwanda. I did some triage there, came back, back in Meifer, did more training and everything. Okay. So it definitely, it definitely helped open up a lot of other opportunities for me to pursue Civi side. So in Rwanda, that was Civi side or was that with the military? That was Civi side. I had a break between two courses when I was in Meiford. So I decided to uh, figured why not rational people do that just hop on a hop on a plane and go by themselves to another country. <laughs> That's super interesting, actually. So how did you choose to do that? Was it through an organization? Uh, so at the time, it's when the tsunami hit Haiti there. So that's like okay. 2011, I think 2010 2011. Um, yeah, I just remember just not feeling like going home and so I looked up how to go to Haiti and they weren't taking any short contracts they wanted um, six months or longer okay for a commitment to go so I looked up with another uh, volunteer organization and I remember sitting in the weather haven in Meaford and just thinking like okay where's like the next most dangerous place to go and then that's how I picked Rwanda that's rational. <laughs> just had that desire to get into some danger, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I was just in my head. I was just like, I just need to get out of here. I was like, why not? I, was, I know I can always handle myself. So I was like, I don't need to go to uh, or some other places they had for options, like in Mexico and everything. Um, not to downplay play those areas, but I was like, yeah, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go big. And so what was that experience like? What did you do there? Uh, so what I did was I drew blood and tested for HIV. I gave talks with the help of a translator about HIV and AIDS. Um, I did pre and postnatal checks on some of the women. And then I worked in a little room just doing all the medic work. So a lot of machete injuries that I treated, um, bandaging, infections, debriding certain injuries. Wow. And how long were you there for? Not long, like a month. Sounds like lots of experience crammed into a short amount of time, though. Oh, definitely. definitely. Yeah. So from there, then you went to Edmonton? 
Uh, from there, I came back home. I was in Neaford for a little bit. And then that's when I was doing my nursing. And then, yeah, I got posted out to Edmonton. What would you say was the hardest course that you've taken in your military career? The hardest course would probably have been my CQCB. Okay. Is that the one on Instagram where you have the bloody nose? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to hear that story for sure. (laughs) Uh, That was the hardest because it was the most physically demanding, but Mm. at the same time, it was the best course I've ever taken. Tell us a little bit about that course. How long was it? Uh, What sort of things did you do on it? And why was it so hard? Okay. Um, So it's a really short course. It's like, I think maybe 10 days. Okay. And as a reservist, you don't have to take it. It's mandatory if you're reg force, but as a reservist, you have to fill out a memo and there's like a health form you've got to fill out before going. Mm-hmm. On the course, you do PT twice a day. So the first thing they do is they check you over. You have to have uh, buttons undone, Velcro undone. You're not allowed to wear belts, boots off. What else? Uh, your nails, you can't have any whites of your nails showing, so that, uh, no watches, anything. So they right. do the whole trick over, and for everything you have wrong, so for every button you have done up, for every, if you have whites of your nails showing, all that, you have to do 25 burpees for each thing. So right away, before you even do PT, you're doing like 50 to 100 burpees. And then you do PT, and the point of the PT is to be so physically exhausting that you can't give 100% in the fights, because mm-hmm. that, that's the point, right? So then after PT, you go into um, learning how to properly break fall, uh, how to do the flips, the chokes, the punches, uh, everything. And then you get with your sparring partner and then you go to lunch and you come back and you repeat. So if you haven't fixed the correction, like remembering to make sure the, the zipper is done up a certain way, you're doing more burpees, then PT, then more fighting. We were probably in bed by eight o'clock every single night, just waking up, chewing on Tylenol and going back to back to it. Yeah, I can imagine that would be pretty exhausting. And those burpees would add up pretty quickly at the end of the day. I remember getting there one morning, looking down at my hands and seeing whites on my nails. And I had already had to do because for each hand, I've already had to do 50 burpees for it. And I didn't have nail clippers. So I told my buddy, I was like, give me your knife. And I literally just oh, like, no. cut my nails down with the knife because I was like, I'm not doing burpees again. Yeah. And so did you have any previous grappling or striking experience before that course? Not really. No. I mean, like as a kid, I took Taekwondo and did um, some competitions for it. But I mean, like that was, that was like little kid stuff that I was really young when I did that. So Going into this, I was just like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. And how did the guys on the course uh, react to having a female? And were you the only female on the course? I was. So I was the only female and the only reservist. And they were awesome. They, I just had to give them the okay because they were hesitant at first. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I gave them the okay, like, listen, like when we're grappling, if you, if you accidentally like rush across my chest I we're we're fighting it's fine once I gave them the okay then it's like okay we actually fought and it was great the instructors same thing because when you get your check over you get punched in the punch thunder chest Mm -hmm. uh, on your sternum right and the one instructor would always knock me in the shoulder but it would hit me in the in a um a a spot where it just gave me a dead arm so I told them I was like listen, you can punch me in the chest too. Yeah. It's okay. And then, yeah, they didn't take it easy on me. They certainly didn't take it easy on me on scenario day. I got my nose broken in the first 15 seconds. 
And that's a good thing too. A lot of people would see like, oh, they should take it easy on the female. And I took a combatives course a couple of years ago. The guys were so hesitant at the beginning until the instructor explained to them, no, you are preparing these women for a scenario. If this happens in real life, no one's going to take it easy on them. You're doing them a disservice if you go easy on them. They went there for a reason. You knew what to expect and you knew that you would have the potential of getting hurt, right? Yeah, I actually had my warrant, one of the warrants at my unit take me aside because I had put in my memo and asked, asked to go and everything. And he actually took me aside and told me, he's like, I don't think this is a good idea for you to go. Like, you need to be able to look yourself in the mirror when you fail. Like, they, no one thought I was going to pass that course because people fail that course often. They get concussed off or something breaks and they can't continue and everything. And I was just like, I don't know, man, like, all I can do is show you and by the end of course, I was asked to come back for the instructor portion and everything. So, Which is weird so because they most likely wouldn't take a guy aside and say that to them. Women can go in the combat arms and do all this, but there is still that unconscious bias in the back of people's heads where it's like, okay, I want to make sure that she's okay with this and, you know, that she's not going to get hurt and I don't think she can do this. But if it was a guy, they wouldn't be saying that. It wouldn't even enter their heads yeah. to, to pull them no, aside 100%. and like have that talk with them. Luckily, I've had it pretty good um, in my career. I don't know, like I'm sure people have probably said things behind my back, but I can remember one time I was in the elevator to go up to my dad's office because his office was downtown near the dockyard in Halifax and we were doing a dive job. So I had my uniform on and the dolphins for port inspection diver kind of look similar to submariner dolphins. So this old guy is, looks at my uniform and he's like, are you a submariner? And I was like, oh, no, I'm a, I'm a diver. And he was like, oh, I was going to say, I didn't think the Canadian Navy was uh, so advanced to have women submariners. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just so casually. <laughs> that was the last frontier for women in the forces. They could join the combat arms before they could serve on a sub. Really? Yeah. For the longest time, they couldn't. And that was the last thing that they couldn't do. So. Oh, man, that's crazy. Yeah. Honestly, like I give props for being in the Navy because being in open water where I can't see the bottom, like just freaks me <laughs> out. And the idea of being anywhere near a sub to me is just as terrifying as if there was like a shark next to me. You could not pay me enough money to be in the same water where a submarine is. Well, it's interesting because as a diver, we didn't, we don't sail on ships. So we're just kind of based at the dive units or at reserve units. We go out in a smaller boat and we'll go over to the dockyard and do inspections or little minor repairs of the boats, but we don't go out and, and sail on the boats. Have you done deployments with the military or even exercises uh, with other countries? I went to California last year and I worked with some Marines there and I got qualified to drive a Humvees, which was super slick. And then I worked with other American combat engineers a few years back in Canada but those would be the only times I've only, only ever worked with American troops. Mm -hmm. I've met some some lads who are special forces from over in Europe. Okay. But that was uh, that was city side, so I didn't get to work with them with the with the military, you know. But uh, when they were doing a medic course, I got to because uh, I used to be the training coordinator for a company that does medical training for law enforcement, special forces, and all that. Okay, neat. So I got to observe them on that course, which was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. I, with the Navy, I guess it's usually like when the ships go into other ports, they usually try and do an exercise with other countries. So I was just sort of wondering, sometimes I'll see pictures on the Army Instagram working with the US or over in Europe. I'm generally not very educated on what the Army does. So anything that you have that you can enlighten me on would be awesome. 
But I mean, like, same thing. I'm not too privy on anything Navy either. So it's actually really, it's a cool learning experience for me too. What would a day or a week as an infantier look like? Well, typically at the home unit, it's just basically whatever's on the training schedule. So like uh, getting ready for ranges, doing like a field exercise here and there uh, would involve some nav, some patrolling, some section attacks, all that. But right now I'm teaching a uh, reg force beam kilon. So that day today is just, I mean, today was a range day for the C9, which was pretty cool. It's a mill shoot. And then we've got uh, weapons handling tests tomorrow rucking back and forth from classrooms to food inspections lots of inspections what do you do for pt on a regular basis to stay fit and to stay able to do ruck marches and be in the combat arms well i do a lot i i really love working lower body i do a lot of lower body uh so you know your typical like your squats things to just basically build up the glutes because with rucking it's a little easier being being a female because i have hips and mm. the way you have the placement of the rock is the weight needs to be on your hips. So I have the advantage there. And then where you want to work for that is going to be, you want some uh, back, but then glutes, quads. So I make sure that I work that. My upper body, like when I had like train hard is going to be just your typical like body weight stuff, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I incorporate some weights and I, I don't run. Unless I have to, because I'm on course, like I avoid running and I probably should work on it more, but it's like, unless I'm running from something or to something, this whole, like, let's just run in a circle thing does not, I don't like it. Yeah. I don't like it either. Sometimes I'll force myself to do it just as, because I'm not good at it. There are some people that hardly ever run and then they can just go and crush a 10K with a really good time. But for me, it's always, it's always been a struggle. I joined cross country in college to try and get better. I was like, oh, maybe if I'm running regularly and I have a coach and I'm doing a plan, maybe I'll get better. And I just like, I still sucked and I was still slow. So sometimes I'm like, you know, the David Goggins forced myself to go for runs, but it's just, it's just not enjoyable. Um, oh man, I had, on my BMQ land, I'm uh, sorry, on, like, what's the BMQ land now, the SQ, um, my course officer, he was also, he was also my friend, uh, just a solid, solid dude. My running sucked at the beginning of course, so that was, I got injured off my full-time one, so I had to do the weekend one. And so during the week, we would meet two times during the week and he would just take me for runs. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the course, I was lucky if I finished the run like a few meters behind everybody. And by the end of course, I was at the very front every single time. That's the worst part because it's like, I know if I keep at it and I work <laughs> at it, I can do it. It could be really good. I just don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, that's the other thing too with working out. To make it sustainable, you have to do something you enjoy to some extent, right? Unless you're doing it as a way to also do some mental training as well and to force yourself to do something that you don't like. But for most people and for the general population, if you want to maintain your workouts and not be one of those people that just goes to the gym for three weeks and then stops going, you have to pick an activity that you enjoy. Did you ever get any of the common sort of infantry injuries? Like I hear a lot of knee and ankle and back injuries. No, I'm doing okay. My, the injuries that I have, like my main injury was my shoulder, which got, got really messed up in me third. But as far as uh, knees, ankles, no, you just, uh, you just got to make sure you lace your boots, right? I know a lot of the boys that like, for example, jumping, mm-hmm. they get a lot of, a lot of the knee, knee and ankle injuries for sure. But 
uh, I'm not there yet. Yeah, when you see those videos of them in those round canopies just crashing into the ground, you can see really why a lot of them do get so many ankle injuries. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that something where you are now, would that be an opportunity for you to do a jump course or is it only certain infantry units that have that available to them? So the reserve infantry unit that has like an actual jump company is the Queen's Own Rifles and they're, they're fucking awesome. I got some friends in that unit and like, mm-hmm. I, I love that unit. I'm not even in it. And I just, I love them. I think they're, I think they're amazing. And so for other infantry reserve units, you want to do it. They usually have to, it's, it's not that you can't get a spot. It's just trying to get that spot first and then mm-hmm. you have to marry it for it. It's a really desired, much desired course from other units. So you have to merit for it and then do the PT test, pass the PT test, and then go on the course. So it doesn't happen very often, at least within my unit, but it's something that I definitely aspire to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine that that's a very, very desirable course in the Army, just to have the the wings pinned on your chest. And be able to wear that that patch on the uniform. It's like you see the other boys with it, and you're just like, ah. One of the sergeants of another section in my BMQ platoon, he was from the Queen's Own Rifles and he was just like, you know, one of my first exposures to seeing someone in the military was BMQ, obviously. And he was just very scary, but at the same time, never yelled at anyone. But he was just one of those people that you're like, okay, we're going to behave around this guy. (laughs) And he would always sort of talk to us about quiet professionalism. And he's actually, uh, he works with the Rangers now. So he trains them and he goes up to Northern Ontario and does all sorts of survival skills. Seen pictures of him where they're doing rescues from rapids and all sorts of really neat stuff. Nice. Yeah. And it's actually an interesting point that you bring up like the quiet professionalism, because that's what we tell the troops all the time like so we tell the troop like okay you're going to be course senior today and they just get so loud and they just start screaming and we have to tell them like there's a difference between leadership and loudership and you're being really fucking loud right now it's interesting because I think a lot of people have that in their mind that that's what the military is. Just, you know, people barking orders at people all the time. And then you get in and you see the various leadership styles and then you sort of learn what works and what doesn't. And you see people that you want to aspire to be like and people that you're like, okay, yeah, I'm never going to be like that person in my career because that's terrible. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you know, that's another one of those things that I think is probably going to die out as the younger people start advancing in rank and the people people now uh, retire. That's the way it was, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And the way they treated people uh, was a lot different. And now that we're seeing sort of a different military, I think that 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 way is going to be extinct soon almost. There's pros and cons because, I mean, the whole like, okay, you're not allowed to swear. And candidates being told on their basic training that like, hey, they can't yell at you and they can't be mean. Yeah. That they're losing sight of, okay, no, we don't always need to yell. Like I'll tell my troops, like there's, there's the principles of leadership and that's my promise to them. I, I will uphold that to them. And I was like, but to get, tell you right away, I tell them right off the bat, I'm an asshole and there's going to be times that I'm going to yell, but if I'm yelling, there's a reason I'm not mm-hmm. going to scream at you just for the sake of screaming. That's not how I believe in teaching people at all. But, you know, like if I'm yelling, there's, there's definitely going to be a reason for it. But at the same time, like I'm not there to be their friend either. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not going to tell you, oh, great job today on inspection. No, because the expectation is that you is that you would do well on inspection. So why am I telling you good job for something that I expect you to, to do? There's a standard that you have to meet, obviously, 
and it's for a reason, especially in the military, I guess the military and, uh, you know, law enforcement and firefighting, when there's lives on the line, you need to be able to perform to a certain level. You can't have certain, like, there's people with certain allergies that I know that haven't gotten in because of that. There's top-notch fucking people who would be able to do it, but because of an allergy or because of, uh, I don't know, I know they let people with diabetes in now, but uh, yeah, but because of an allergy, they can't join. And it's like, you're kind of baffled, you're baffled. I think it'll be interesting to see 10 or 20 years from now what the military is like. I think one of my favorite, favorite things I got to do is, this is ages, ages ago, like at least a decade ago, um, in Meaford, we were on the range with the C9s and we had a, some snipe, there were two snipers come. And I got picked as one of the ones that had to co- like coach them. Yeah, like with the, with the C7, but sorry, correction with the C9 though. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I was just like, are you fucking serious? Like this guy's a sniper. Like he, he knows, he knows his principles of marksmanship. I'm just going to stand here, I guess. Yeah. So he's in the prone, I'm in the prone. And, uh, he starts shooting and I'm just like, yeah, adjust and like hammers it off. And, but then he stops and I'm just like, what is happening right now? And he's like, get on the gun. All the other candidates are behind me. Like what? And I'm like, I go to put on my helmet and he's like, fuck your helmet. And I was like, okay. (laughs) So then I get down in the prone and he's just like, yeah, like, no, take a knee. And he puts me, he gets me positioned in the kneeling position with the C9 telling me he's like long burst and he like gets me on target and that was like pretty much the coolest experience I've ever had was being coached to fire the C9 from the kneeling by a sniper and like actually getting on target but I think that's probably like one of the coolest things. (laughs) Do you guys do any sort of urban ops CQB that sort of thing? Yeah so that stuff has to do with what's in the training schedule for it I know I think it was like two years ago we were doing a lot of CQB room clearing all that stuff Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of fun. That's kind of fun to go through. What people don't understand about that is they think there's only like one way to do it. And they don't yeah. understand that like urban ops is like constantly evolving and changing for like some people are taught, I'm going to square off in front of the door and charge right in and take a hard turn where other people like do the quote, like cutting the pie, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's always interesting. And uh, ranges, ranges are always good. I think I, I really love just like, I like patrols. Those are fun because they're just walking. All of it's just so foreign, other than being on PLQ and we were doing our little scenarios and going out for our patrols, which were very, very short, probably compared to what you guys would do on an exercise. <laughs> but we got to play Army for a week, so that was kind of fun. What are your future goals for your career? I have to get my, my RCC done and out of the way. Uh, so get my CQCI, so do my instructor, instructor portion of the uh, Close Quarter Combat course. I'd like to get that done. And uh, yeah, just kind of like hang out and keep teaching. What was the first one that you said? Uh, I don't know the acronym. So PLQ on the old system when you and I first joined was six mods. Right. And, you know, your mod one was your PT. uh, And then, yeah, you had the two to five in there. And then mod six was your field portion. Mm -hmm. Infantry PLQ is a little different from army PLQ. It's, It's longer. We have extra field stuff that we have to do. And then what they did is they changed that a few years ago through, and they made it mods one through four. So you have PLQ, which is mods one, two, and three, and then your AGLC, or if you're infantry, IGLC, which is your infantry junior leadership course. So I did the old system, 
And then I didn't get my field portion done in time. And so then the shelf life ran out and then I had to do it again. So I did it again, but now they're going, now they're just like, Hey, it was better the old way where you get qualified up to Sergeant. And so now they're going back to the old system. So you've got, I can't remember exactly what it stands for right now, but it's just the, a longer, like a different field portion. Okay. So do you think that you'll stay uh, working in the military or do you have any civilian side things that you want to do also? Uh, well, right now I'm starting my uh, Bachelor of Science for Human Sciences. And then I wonder at my MCAT after that. So ideally, I would like to go back to where I was with, with medicine and, mm. and, and pursue that. But I'll probably be playing the, uh, the Army gig for a while. Would you want to do that through the Army or you would want to go city side as a doctor? Ooh, so actually it's get the schooling done mm-hmm. and then write my MCAT, get into med school. Mm-hmm. And then that's when I transfer in the army, go over medic side, officer, and uh, do it that way. Nice. Yeah. Smart idea. It's got to work for you, right? Because like the army, you're only ever a number and that's just what you are. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's just numbers. So it's like, okay, how am I going to make this work for me then? Yeah. And it's pretty similar to probably anywhere in the military. There are lots of different opportunities. I mean, there are people who sit around and complain about their jobs within the military and kind of just do their job and that's it. And that's fine. And some people only want to just do their job so that they can get the paycheck and uh, support their family or get the paycheck and go do whatever other activities they want to do. And then there are other people in the military that constantly look for other opportunities within the military that are out there because there's so much other cool stuff that you can do within the military and sometimes it takes a little bit of nudging people and a little bit of being the greasy wheel to get on certain courses or whatever but I mean there's a lot of cool stuff that you could do potentially you just kind of have to take your career into your own hands sometimes yep absolutely so what would be your advice to women wanting to join the Canadian forces and in particular the combat arms my advice would be just to have that resiliency and just be resilient you're going to encounter so many things that just suck and like set you back something that people don't even acknowledge for example as easy as like female hygiene in the field like it just sucks but like just to have that resiliency to get through and then just do it you know going to the combat trades yeah we've come a long way with allowing women to be in it but what is it i think it's like 25 percent of the canadian armed forces are female less than 3% are in combat trades. Yeah, and I think it's not even that. I, I feel like right now it's only 14 or 15%. I think the 25% is what they want to be at maybe. It's super low, especially for the combat arms. And I was going to ask you as well, do you notice an increase in women joining since you've joined or is it the same numbers? To be honest, less. Like when I first joined, there were six other females on a basic And every other course I've had since then, maybe one other female. Otherwise, I'm usually the only female. On the BMQ chat this summer, on the course that I was teaching on, there were four females, only one of which was going combat trade. I really don't think the numbers have changed that much. That's weird, right? Because they're recruiting, they're like, oh, we want the numbers to be this much. But I think generally there are some trades that just maybe don't appeal to women. I don't know what the solution is or... I mean, like with combat trades... Like, it's, it's great. Like, man, like, the, the camaraderie I have with my, with my buddies, it's, it's solid. You can't replace that. And I, I'm sure you find that in every single trade. But it, it's not easy 
not every female can do it, but that being said, not every male can do it either. Yeah. If their mindset's there and they're tenacious enough, they can do it. It's just, they have to be, I would say my advice would be like, be comfortable with doing a good gut check and asking yourself, you know, am I doing this for the right reasons? And can I physically do it? And understanding your limitations. And then it's like, okay, if you, if you can do it, then fucking do it and do it at a hundred percent and don't take shit from anybody. Don't let someone say like, you can't do it just because you're a female. But if it comes to a time where it's like, but I can't, then just be like, okay, I might not be able to do this, but I can do this support trade and be fucking awesome. Yeah. And sometimes it might mean having to work out extra harder than what the guys do just to be able to lift the same amount of weight and to carry your own weight within that unit. Yeah, that can definitely, that can definitely be hard. And all those things, honestly, all those things are, you can, you can work out and you can build towards, you can work at being a better runner. You can Mm -hmm. work at lifting heavier weight, but it's the mindset of the person. Like you either have or you don't. Yeah. I mean, it's not easy. And especially that's sort of why I wanted to do this podcast with the more physically demanding or the ones where you're like maybe a one of or a two of or whatever. You know, I've been on courses where I'm the only female. And for me, it didn't, I don't know, it didn't bother me. When I grew up, there weren't any girls hockey leagues. So if you're a girl and you wanted to play hockey, you had to play on the guys team. Um, So that was just normal for me. And I think that probably helped a lot now. So I don't feel awkward when I'm the only female uh, on a course, but maybe some women would see that as a barrier. I can say that um, my time in the military has definitely opened my eyes a lot more to like the mental health aspect. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, a lot of times the injuries that happen and that are sustained, everyone tends to gear towards you know, like the the physical ones and everything, but it's definitely opened up my eyes a lot more to the unseen injuries, for sure. That's kind of after seeing what my dad went through when he got back from one of his deployments, like eons ago in the 90s there. That's what really motivated me in my uh, in my adult life to pursue like, okay, how do we get more awareness to it? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, talk about it. Because even 10 years ago, boys were coming back from Afghanistan and 2004 2005 and it's like don't you dare say you have PTSD and you know you don't you don't talk about it you pretend it doesn't exist I'd say that's uh that's something that's definitely been really really important to me mm-hmm. um, the military has made progress I think that there's still quite a bit left to go but you know where they're trying to do checks before you leave and they're trying to make sure that everyone goes to see someone when they come back find that they're being really big on mental health awareness lately and I think one of the reasons before that people didn't want to come forward was because they didn't want to put their career in jeopardy because oh if you admit you have a problem you're going to be medically released whereas now they're trying to get on that path where it's like no if you have an issue we'll help you deal with it you're not necessarily going to be medically released I think there still is some hesitation and it takes a while to sort of sink in and for that to implement but hopefully we're moving in the right direction and it sort of continues to get better because I know Mm -hmm. there's there still are some people that are fighting that they don't want to be released like that's it's almost going to make it worse in some cases because that's your your community of people like those are your brothers and sisters and now you're going to the doctor and someone's saying okay no you, you can't work with them anymore you can't be there you have to choose something else to do in your life and then that's adding even more stress um, yeah absolutely that's really hard what is your favorite part about being in the canadian forces oh gosh my favorite part about being in the cf is ranges i just really love shooting 
I know like some people probably say like the camaraderie and lessons learned or something like that. But for me, it's just, uh, it's just that feeling of being on target, getting a small grouping and uh, yeah, shooting. The other one would be, what is your least favorite part of being in the CF? Oh man, I just, I had such a good talk the other day where I just kind of realized and I was sad at the same time. That's like, and this is probably going to contradict what we said earlier, but never going to be one of the guys. And it just sucked realizing it. I'd say that's probably like the thing that I dislike the most is just having to understand that I'm just never going to be one of the guys. Like I can, I can shoot, I can rock, I can't run. Still need to work on that. But <laughs> There's still always, no matter how big of a push the CF does to want to get more females in and, you know, like, especially in the combat, combat trades, like we're always going to have to push harder, but at the same time, I think it just kind of helps make us a little bit more resilient. Mm -hmm. Definitely need that resiliency for, for those trades and like an understanding, you know, they want to recruit women into those trades, but but the ones that are are going to join definitely have to have that understanding that, you know, you have to be more resilient than say, if you're joining another trade where you might be behind a computer most of the time or something that's much less physical and where there are a lot more other women to work with, I guess. Yeah. So you wanted to talk about some mental health advocacy stuff? Yeah, definitely. Are you involved with any organizations or is it just something that you're passionate about? Uh, So what happened was, I started a few years ago, and I always wanted to get uh, some sort of awareness out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so what I did was I started thinking, okay, like, what can I do on my end? So it's like, okay, well, I can organize a dinner. I can help out here at an event. And so then I started doing those types of things. And then Mad Hatter uh, Industries Veteran Apparel Company messaged me on Instagram and I was like, Hey, like we want you to be part of a team. I said, why? I'm really not that interesting. Like, I don't know how I can possibly help. And they're like, no, no, like we think that you'd be a great fit. So I was like, all right, cool. So I hopped on board with them and thinking that it would be something simple, like, okay, just like take a picture wearing their t-shirt, you know, a few small things like that. And it ended up being like this big community and like meeting so many other people like-minded and what they were doing for for the initiative of just raising the awareness for PTSD and OSI and starting that conversation and making it a like a positive conversation. Because everyone seems to think that it has to be such a negative and dark thing and that like once you have it, you never get better from it or anything like that, right? Yeah. So that's kind of where I am now is just uh, I just work with Mad Hatter and I'll do photos for some of their apparel and then just use it as the platform to just keep the conversation going. Nice. And that company was started by a veteran? Yeah, Corey. Okay. Corey, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, he's he's fantastic. So it's great. Like we'll we'll kind of just like shoot the shit on like ideas for like, oh, for a t-shirt. I'm like, that sounds amazing. And I get to see things before they're launched and it gets me so excited. So 
there's a lot of veterans being very entrepreneurial lately. And then the good thing is, obviously, they realize that there are different organizations and people in need. So a lot of them do sort of give back a certain percentage to different organizations that help other veterans. So I think that's pretty cool, too. What I've been dying to share with people, this is it. So it's the Minister of Veterans Affairs Accommodation for my work with the advocacy and stuff that I do for uh, raising awareness for PTSD and OSI. Congratulations. <laughs> and I've had it for a few weeks now and I've known about it because they called me when I was at, I was in Cabela's and I got the phone call <laughs> and I honest to God thought it was yeah. a prank. And I'm not allowed to say anything until it's like formally announced because they only pick a few people every year. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your Apple podcast app.